what is this? You're failing three classes. Yeah, well, that's what it is. Oh man, I don't know which way to turn. It's like I always told you, man. All roads lead to God. Far out, man. YOLO! Well, good morning, church. How's everyone doing? Well, that was encouraging. That sounds awesome. I can't wait to preach now. Hey, welcome to our Cactus Campus. Joining us from 25th Street, that community over there. Welcome to our venue and chapel communities, as well as our online community, uh, both here uh, in our nation as well as around the globe. Thank you for joining us. We're so glad that you're here as we press on to our second week in our Dangerous Saying series. So last week, Jamie came in and I thought, did a wonderful job of talking us through this first saying in the series, which was, it is what it is. I don't know about you guys, but how many of you said that this week jokingly to each other? Yeah, because at least 100 of you said it to me. So I was at uh, the Sereno soccer deal that we do with our kids, and I, a bunch of SBC folks are there, and so I heard that walking up and down the sidelines. I helped coach my son's team, and it was, well, coach, it is what it is. It was like, eh, that's good, that's awesome. So, hey, I want to start us today with a story that I think goes along with my saying for the week, which is this, as long as you're happy, which is a thing that we hear all the time. In fact, it's becoming more and more prevalent in our culture because kind of this pursuit of whatever you think makes you happy is becoming kind of a value for us. So this one I think is a little less benign than last week's and we're gonna dive into it a little bit. But I had a couple sitting on my couch a couple of months ago and I know them pretty well and over the last like, three years, they've had a lot of change in their life. They've both become believers and direction of their families changed a lot. And so on this particular day, when they sat down, the wife said, you know, I'm really struggling. I'm really worried about money. I was like, all right. And I, you know, was kind of trying to feel out where are we going with this? And the, the husband had just had a job change. And in the job change, he was in a new career and the career had a little bit of ramp up. So there was some building of, of kind of his business before he would start to see uh, some financial reward. And so he was doing okay, but uh, the challenge was money wasn't just flowing in like it used to. And so as we sat there and we started to talk, anybody who's ever been involved in discipleship, you know that just sometimes you say things and they're just far too good to have come from you. You guys know what I mean? There's like this moment where you just go, oh, that's gotta be the Lord because that's way too good to be me. And so I sort of had one of those moments and the Lord put a question on my mind to challenge her with. I said, uh, let me ask you this. Um, if I were to give you 10 grand a month for the rest of your life after taxes for you to live on, would you be happy? And she sort of wrestled for a second and then she said, 
Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I think that would solve my problem. I think I'd be happy. I said, all right, well, let's do this. Let's, let's back up. Let's say I took you back three years and I talked to the three years ago you and I showed you all of the spiritual growth you were about to have over the next three years. Let's imagine that. And then I offered you a trade. I said, hey, I'll take all the spiritual growth that you're about to have over the next three years, and in its place, I'll give you 10 grand a month after taxes. You're gonna have 120 grand a year into perpetuity. Would you make the trade? And something happened in my friend. She sat there and she went, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade what God has done in me for anything. And I said, wow, do you think money's really your problem? Even beyond that, I said, do you really wanna be happy as you're kind of telling me what it means today? She said, no, I don't think I do. The reality was what God was pointing my friend towards in that moment was something else, an alternative pursuit. Something that she had to kind of sit back and reconcile. She didn't totally know what it was, but we started to talk about it as our time went on. And we're gonna go after maybe an alternative pursuit today as we talk over the next 30 minutes to talk about maybe something that happiness uh, is kind of the other. And we're gonna go through it a little bit. But before we do that, because here's what I've learned in my pastoral career uh, just up to this point. Uh, when you start to mess with people's comfort, they start to freak out. And I intend to do that a little bit today, to mess with your comfort. So before all of you freak out on me, can we pray? Would that be okay? <laughs> Let's bow our heads. Uh, Lord, in preparation for this message today, you've just continued to uh, burden my heart with this picture that I think applies to all of us. We have these little places in our lives and we've sort of made these uh, subtle understandings that um, you would never ask us for those things. And we kind of shell them off. They're different for all of us, but we shell them off from you and we put these little protective shells around them. And it's sort of this place where very, in a very real way, we've protected ourselves from you and your plan in some ways for our life. And so, Holy Spirit, we would just ask this today in agreement that we want your plan for our life. Would you go in as only you can, gently crack those shells off of some of these little idols that we have and that we would start to gain a courage or a tenacity, a fierceness to say, Will you do whatever you want to do? Will you do your purposes, whatever it takes to accomplish your purposes in my life? Now, this is a tough prayer. And so Lord, we pray it while resting in the midst of your love and your care for us. And we pray this in your name, amen. All right, so last week, Jamie sat down and he did this wonderful etymology for his, fra his phrase. He said, you know, I can show you where it is what it is, showed up for the first time when they were saying it, who hated it, who loved it, all that stuff. And he kind of sunk my battleship because I don't have that. So there's, there's not really that for my phrase. I can't tell you when they started saying, as long as you're happy. But I did do a word study on my phrase and I didn't do it on as or long or your. I did it on the word happy. So let's take a look at what we found here. The word happy is an adjective. It started to show up in the late 14th century. What happy kind of derived from was the word hap or happenstance. Okay, So when happy was first used in the English language, it had the sense of the meaning of chance or fortune, and it meant to be lucky or favored by fortune, being in advantageous circumstances. 
Church, isn't it interesting that when this phrase first arrived, to be happy at first meant to be lucky? You see, when we look at that, we don't use it that way anymore. You don't sit back at someone and you say, well, what a happy circumstance you found yourself in. You came into a bit of money. Or isn't that happy for you? Uh, that circumstance went your way. We don't use happy that way anymore. We use happy as more of like kind of a pursuit, a thing that we should all be striving for at times. That's the way culture uses it. They sit down and they sort of say, you know, hey, as, as long as you're happy, which by the way is always kind of funny. Has anyone ever said that to you? There's this moment where someone, you tell them this idea you have for your life and they go, well, as, as long as you're happy, which is a nice way of saying, I think that's stupid, but you can do it if you want to, right? But that word happy, it was never meant to really be what it's supposed to be. It was kind of meant to be something that came upon you. Real quick, if you turn your attention right here, we've got a great quote. It's from Nathaniel Hawthorne. It says, happiness is a butterfly, which when pursued is always just beyond your grasp, but which if you will sit down quietly may alight upon you. That's true about happiness, isn't it? Anybody who's been on earth for more than 10 minutes could tell you, it ain't always happy, is it? And yet we sort of aim ourselves at happiness as if it's supposed to be sustainable. You see, I think part of the reason this saying is kind of dangerous is because happiness in the way that it was derived, it, it is momentary, and yet we have tried to make it sustainable and we can't figure out why we're exhausted. Many of us are sitting back today kind of going, well, Maybe I've confused happiness with something else, which in my opinion is what makes this a dangerous saying. So let's say you're sitting back right now and you go, all right, well, you know, Rustin, the opening story, I'm not sure your friend really knew what she was talking about. You know, I think happiness may be a little more achievable than that. And I'm not sure your definition really still applies. You know, we've, we're so much smarter than we used to be in the 14th century. So let's say that I've missed the meaning and I've missed the application. Let me ask you one more penetrating question. At what point in your life do you think you are capable of deciding what happiness is and what you should do to attain it, okay? Parents in the room, would you like a 16-year-old male child to do whatever it takes to go out and be happy? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. There's a reason that their insurance rates on cars are as high as they are, because they run them into things. What about 26? All right, we have a recently fully formed frontal lobe. We've got a whole new way of pursuing life. You can rent your own car now. This is all very good news. But I can tell you right now, at 26 years old, you would not have wanted me to decide anything for my life or anyone around me. What about 36? That's me now. I'll be 36 next month. Some of you are sitting back going, I'm not sure I still want you to decide anything for life or culture around me. But for every 36-year-old there is out there who's doing well or who's kind of mature for his age or anything like that, there's always a 46-year-old looking going, if you only knew how foolish you were. And there's a 56-year-old looking at the 46-year-old because he's grown so much in his last 10 years. And a 66-year-old woman looking at a 56-year-old woman going, if you only knew and so on and so forth. Because the reality is we are always in this experience of growing. We are always in this experience of walking forward through life. 
I'm not sure that at any point we're ever really qualified on our own to decide what makes us happy. It sure would be helpful if we had a guide, someone who could help us find our way. So if we don't know what happiness really is, and we really don't know when we're capable of a healthy pursuit of it, then we really have two questions that we need answering today. One of them is, what's the alternative pursuit? And the second is, who's gonna guide us there? And to do that, I'd like to go to a book that I think is pretty reliable, but I'd like to address a reality before we do that. We are just coming out of Easter at this church, and that means something. Uh, There's kind of two groups of people in the room. One of the groups is you come here on a regular basis. You're part of the family here at Scottsdale Bible Church. You might volunteer. You might be a part of of a class or a small group. You might be tied in to the regular function of the church. And you say, man, this is my place. You've got a saving relationship with Jesus. You call him your friend and you two walk through life together with the guidance of the scriptures. But because it's just after Easter, we may have an entirely different group in here who may have come, experienced Easter because that's what we all do on that Sunday each year. And now you're sitting back going, I'm gonna come check out this Dangerous Sayings series. It sounds interesting. And so what I wanna clarify is if you're in this room as what I would say kind of seeking maybe more out of your spiritual life or a phrase that I've become really comfortable with, you're sort of evaluating the claims of Christ. I just wanna tell you from the bottom of my heart, I'm so glad that you're here today. If you would have asked me a week or two ago, just going, Rustin, I'm not really into this whole Jesus thing. I'm not really uh, clicking with the whole church thing. I don't really know what it's all about. And to be honest, some of it seems a little weird to me. Do you really want me at your church? I would have said, gosh, I'd love for you to join us. There's no place that I'd rather have you on a Sunday morning. And I just want you to hear me say that today because as we talk about the Bible, I understand that it may not be a book that you base your life on. And I'm not trying to sit back and say that you have to. All I wanna do today is tell you why it's the book that I base mine on. So with that, what we're gonna do is we're gonna go to the book of Philippians. We're gonna go to chapter three. If you've got your Bibles, pull those out. If you've got your... Uh, mobile devices, you can find this verse on there as well. We're gonna start at the very end of verse eight and we're gonna go through verse 11 today. There's a lot more in Philippians than we're gonna be able to cover today, but you're welcome to go back and read the rest of chapter three, but let's start at the very end. Paul makes all these points as he's writing to this church in Philippi. That's what Philippians is. It's a, it was a letter at one point to a church. And so at the very end, after he makes all these points, he brings it to the main point, and he says this, all these things in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul starts this thing off, he's kind of said all these other things, and he says something important. All of what I said was this, that I may gain Christ. Well, that's an interesting phrase. What does it mean to gain Christ? Well, it could mean two things, really. I mean, there's two roads where Paul could be going here. Uh, in thought, one of would be to gain Christ initially, to come into a relationship with Christ. 
And here in the church, we call that salvation. All it means is save. I, I got saved. You hear that phrase in culture a lot by Christians. When did you get saved? I got saved. Well, what's it mean? It just means that I came to a place where I looked around my life and said, gosh, it's just not really working the way I'm walking this thing out. I'm tired of walking it alone. And so I bumped into Jesus through someone else sharing the good news of who he is, a loving God who longs to be with me. And I came back to this loving God and I said, it ain't working out so good, me on my own. I've fallen far short and I would love a safe place to land. And God's response, and we know this from the scriptures, is I'm so glad you're home. I've been waiting for you. And that's salvation. That's when we come into this saving relationship. But there's another big lengthy S word that I'll explain here. And it's this, it's sanctification. And all sanctification means is it's just a big fancy word that means after salvation and forward, we start to grow. We start to grow with Jesus. We've come into this new saving relationship and now we're just starting to walk him out. And so what Paul's saying here is it's not just to gain initially like he did through being saved with Christ. It's now I'm still gaining because he didn't just bring me home when he saved me, he started bringing the rest of my life home as well. Little areas that I had forgotten about or I didn't think were a big deal, but I all of a sudden realized, man, this area is super broken. And, and the Lord goes, let me bring that home as well. He continues to restore us as we walk. You know what I think Paul means when he says that he may gain? I think he means both. That we would gain Christ in salvation, but it's not done there. He loves us so much that he goes, you know, I don't do second place things. I do best things. It's so great. Like the first miracle that Jesus does, what does he do? He turns water into, you guys are listening. That's awesome. He turns water into wine and he doesn't do just any wine, does he? No, in fact, they start serving the wine that Jesus created and what do they do? Man, the... the the, the guy's sitting there losing his mind. He's freaking out. He's like, who, who made this? Where'd you get this wine? This is the best wine. Who serves this wine at this point in the wedding? Everybody's already maybe had too much and now they're sitting back going, wow, this wine, the best wine now? Jesus does best things. And so when he starts restoring us, he wants best for us. And he goes, I wanna restore the places that you even think are kind of okay. After Paul says this, he says, not only does he want to gain Christ, but he wants to be found in him. Another interesting phrase. When are we gonna be found in him? Again, is it, is it right now or is it eternally? Like is, is Paul talking about, I wanna be found in him now or is it at some point someday? Again, here's what I'd tell you, both. You see, Paul's recognizing a reality. Oh, oh yeah, God didn't just save me and then forget about me. This is what culture gets so wrong about Christianity. It's not just a bunch of people sitting in a building on Sunday morning who are overly worried about their eternal destination. It is people who ran out of a road currently and are now sitting back going, it's not just that I get Christ for eternity. The reward of the gospel is that I get Jesus now. He sits back and meets me in the midst of all the things that I don't understand. And like I said that I'm unqualified to talk about or to really decide for my own life. He is guiding me. He is working with me and walking with me through life. So in all of these things, now Paul's sitting back going, listen, I wanna gain from Christ. I wanna be found in him both now and eternally. 
And from there, he starts to qualify it just a little bit. And he says, and this is how it works, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Paul was a Pharisee, and here's what that meant. He was a high-ranking official within the Jewish religion. He had done everything right. He'd followed all the rules. There's places in the scriptures where he kind of just lets you know. He almost brags a little bit just to kind of go, all these things that I used to do that were a big deal within the Jewish religion because what Paul was, he was the type of guy that people looked at and went, there goes Saul. That was his name before Jesus saved him. There goes Saul. He's a big deal now and he's gonna be an even bigger deal down the road. That's our golden boy. He's the man on the rise. And he lists off all the things that he had because what Paul was responsible for in the midst of his old righteousness that he's describing here, not having a righteousness of my own, Paul had to generate that righteousness. He had to keep doing all these things to be obedient. He had to do the right things at the temple. He had to say the right things. He had to remain ceremonially clean. It was this lengthy, exhausting process. And what Paul did with that was generate his own righteousness. And Paul goes, you know, I don't, I don't want that anymore. You know, that didn't work for me. I, I did all that, and now I have something new. What is that something? It's this, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Clarification, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's got something new now. He's going, listen, I was blind before, and I was exhausted, had to generate my own righteousness, but then Jesus came into my life. He shattered all of that, and now I call it rubbish compared to what I have now, this new thing. Well, what is this new thing? Starts, the, starts at verse 10 there. It says this, the new thing is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What Paul had before was he had a bunch of routine ceremony. He did the right stuff and it produced righteousness in the opinion of the religion he was in. But where he once had routine ceremony, it says now he wants to know him. What does he have instead of routine ceremony? He now has relationship with Christ who he gains from and is found in. And now he feels something new. He feels a power. What power? A power of the resurrection. Do you know why that statement's so cool? Because it's what we just celebrated at Easter. It's through the resurrection that something amazing happens. Spiritual life now comes to the church because Christ conquered death, he conquered sin, and he now stands there and says, no one comes to the Father except through me, but my invitation is to all. Something we'll look at next week with our next dangerous saying of all roads lead to God. But Christ's invitation is saying, come on in. I have a relationship with you. I want one that's deeper. I wanna go to places that you haven't even seen yet. And the power of the resurrection is that Paul no longer has to generate his own life through righteousness, but now is gonna sit back and depend on the life that Christ earned on the cross and brought into existence with the resurrection. Oh, I did all that to bring you to our kind of focus point today, and it's this. It's right in the middle of verse 10, Paul says, and with this power of his resurrection, there's something new that Paul wants to do, and it's, it's he wants to share his sufferings, becoming like him in death. What, who wants to suffer? That sounds awful, doesn't it, church? It's all right, you can say it. Let me tell you, this, say, this whole sermon would be a whole lot easier to preach 
if that verse said, and you shall have perpetual happiness from the day that you accept Christ until the day that you are buried. I could fill this sanctuary 10 times on Sunday with that message. But there's a reality, that's not what it says. It says that he wants to share in the sufferings of Christ. I have an example for you. Uh, any of you out there like to do puzzles? Anyone? Five of you? Come on, nerds, where's your, <laughs> raise your hands, would you? So there's kind of a nerd in me and I try to take care of him anytime I can, but uh, I, my job's really cognitive. I have to think a lot and I, I kind of have a nervous physical energy about me and so I need something to do with my hands that's not connected to, um, to, to thinking or I just need to kind of meddle. I'm a tinkerer at heart. And so um, I like to do puzzles and I like to do them on my workbench that I built out in my garage. Now, if you saw my workbench, what you would say is, Rustin, that is a metal shelving unit that you have screwed a piece of wood to. <laughs> and you'd be right, but to me, it's Narnia. It's just the greatest thing in the world. And so I sit out on my little, you know, makeshift workbench, and I build puzzles, and I watch Ken Burns documentaries on the Civil War, right? That's doubling down on your nerdery when you can do documentaries <laughs> and puzzles. And so what I do is I build uh, these. This is the last puzzle that I put together. It is a 3D puzzle. Calm down, it's not that big a deal, all right? <laughs> this is a laser cut 3D puzzle and all the pieces kind of pop out and uh, they all kind of come together. And when I wind it up, dun, 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 it slowly but surely starts to turn. Yes, thank you. There's a reality uh, in my home though. I could have gone into my son's room. My son McCoy was here last hour, he's four. And when he's not taking our house apart and we can get him to sit still for longer than a nanosecond, he has a puzzle. And his puzzle is about 16 pieces. It's about, pieces are about this big. They all fit in one little box that's about this big. And I could sit there and I could flip those things out and I could kind of take them and find the corners, put them together, find the border, put the six pieces in the center. I could knock that little guy out over and over and over again. I could sit there and just put it together in about a minute and be like, woo, there you go. Now, this puzzle took me about four months to put together, okay? I did it in 30 minute segments. There's no more depressing moment in your life than when you get done with a four month little tinkering project. And at the end of the directions, it tells you it should have taken 26 hours. That's a neat moment. You really feel good. I didn't say I was proficient at this. I said I was committed, all right? But why don't I just grab McCoy's little puzzle and just punch it out and just, woo, all right, did it. And then pull it out again. Have that sense of satisfaction. Because that would be too, say it with me church, that would be too easy. Nobody wants to do a 16-piece puzzle over the age of like six. We want to do difficult things. We want to do challenging things. I think there's an origin of that in all of us that we miss sometimes. The book of Genesis tells us that we are made in the image of God. And what I observe of God is something that is beautiful but sometimes unpleasant. It's a tenacity in God, a ferocity. He doesn't quit on anything. He doesn't sit back and say, mm, this one's a lost cause. He's coming after his most beautiful puzzles, us. You see, God is constantly going, yeah, that little Rustin guy down there, yeah, he's still a knucklehead, but I'm going after him 
because he's restored me from much of my knuckleheadedness. And there's still a bunch of my knuckleheadedness that I'm still doing, but the Lord knows I can't handle the restoration just yet. I'm not strong enough. So his grace is covering things that I'm currently doing that he knows he'll restore down the road when I'm strong enough to handle the change that's required. That's how good God is. But in the same way, I think that faithfulness, that tenacity that is in God is reflected in his kids because we wanna do hard things. We don't wanna do 16-piece puzzles in areas of our life. We have these things called my stories around here, and they're two to three minute little snippets, and they basically tell someone's kind of life story as briefly as they can, and then talk about something that God did in their life that we see as a powerful testimony to how he operates. So many of us think that we want an easy life. So many of us go, I, well, I love the my story, but I just don't want the two to three decades that preceded the two to three minute story. What I'd submit to you today, church, on this point of what Paul says of sharing in Christ's suffering and connecting it back to happiness is you don't really want an easy life. You are hungry for challenge and for change. I never look at anybody and say, if you didn't change again for the rest of your existence here on earth, would that be awesome for you? Nobody says yes, because we all know we wanna change. And the challenge is that much of change comes in difficulty. We wanna sit down and we wanna tinker with our lives. And the great news about who Jesus is, is he, is a, he doesn't just go, I'm gonna knock you out, fix you up and send you on your way. He goes, I want you to participate in the process of me restoring you. I want you to be a part of this journey, that you would walk with me along this way. I want you to sit there and do the 100-piece wooden 3D puzzle with me and sit back and see what happens at the end. There's something sweet about the way Paul ends this. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What Paul's doing here is he's going, listen, all this led up to something specific. I wanna share in his sufferings. I wanna depend on faith. I want it to be his righteousness, not mine. I realized I can't earn it. I'll never be able to do enough. And why? All of it for this reason, that I may attain by any means possible the resurrection from the dead. What Paul's alluding to here is what happens at the end of the story. That when Jesus comes back someday, he will do two things. He will resurrect from the dead those who have, as the Bible says, fallen asleep, what they mean, those who have died. He will resurrect them from the grave and then those who are still living at the time will also come and we will all stand in an account before our king. Paul's saying, I'll do whatever it takes to attain that resurrection. And here's what Paul knows, and this is where it ties to the suffering and the doing difficult things with God in the beginning of this book, in Philippians 1, verse 6, he kind of alludes to the point. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ is the day that he returns, that he resurrects everyone from the dead. What Paul knows about that day is that it will be finished. It will be done. The road that he's been walking with God will be completed. He will bring that work to completion. Do you see how his writing all fits together here in this book of Philippians? I wanna give you an example. We're gonna kinda start moving towards, it's a lengthy example, but it really drives this point home this week. It's, it's been a, uh, an interesting week for our church. 
Last week at the 11 o'clock service, uh, Jamie alluded to in his conclusion, a friend of his who had lost his wife. And uh, I was listening from the venue where I am each week as Jamie shared that example. And that individual was sitting in the venue and he's a good, good friend of mine. And I got his permission to share this story with you because uh, it's changed a lot of lives this week. But this man's name is Dave. Dave was an elder here and continues to be an amazingly impactful part of our community at Scottsdale Bible Church. Dave's wife is Cindy. And what happened is uh, Cindy had been in the midst of a 15-month battle with cancer, melanoma. And she was kind of constantly wrestling back and forth. There'd been some really scary, really low times. And what was happening was she was going in for what they said was a routine brain surgery. Now, those seem like oxymoronic terms to me. I don't really know how brain surgery is routine. But what the doctor said is between a one and a 10, this is a two. And they were gonna go in uh, and take a tumor off of the top of Cindy's brain. And then what they were moving to next was a much awaited therapy. We were just waiting to get her to the right place so that she could pursue that in her healing process. The only challenge was that on Good Friday when Cindy went under for surgery, she never woke up. So what my friend Dave had to do that I can't imagine was they ran scans and they came back and they said, you know, Mr. Scholl, we're so sorry. What we found in Cindy's abdomen was that there are so many tumors that have grown so rapidly and so aggressively. They've taken over some of the blood vessels and now she's starting to bleed internally. But she's too weak to undergo any more surgery. And my friend had to make what, I can't even imagine what a devastating decision to make his wife Cindy comfortable until the Lord brought her home. I walked into the hospital uh, the next Monday after Easter, right after, and I walked in and and Cindy was there. She was comfortably resting and she was kind of what they knew, just dwindling. And I, I walked over and I hugged my friend. The only thing I could think to say to him was this, uh, Dave, she led a life that will be so easy to celebrate. She led an amazing life and he agreed. And about 15 or 20 minutes later, as we were sitting there in that hospital room and I watched woman after woman after woman who Cindy had impacted with her amazing time here on earth coming through, Dave looked at me and said, hey, would you do me a favor? I'd like you to do the memorial service. I said, okay. Cindy was a good friend of mine. And so I knew what I was in for. I knew it was gonna be tough, but I just said, absolutely, I'd be honored. And Dave said, Cindy had one thing she really wanted. She loved the way that Tom Schrader gave the uh, gospel at Larry Wright's funeral. I know it's a big ask, but could you go find a copy of that funeral and would you watch it for me? And so I did. I went and I watched it. And I listened to Tom Schrader. I mean, just for those of you that don't know them, Tom Schrader and Larry Wright are two of the more impactful, like iconic Christian figures in the valley through the last years as it's developed. And uh, in 2004, Tom did one of the more just emblazoned uh, presentations of the gospel of Jesus Christ that I've ever seen. I watched it and I talked to Dave and Dave said, well, did you watch it? Yeah. And he said, "Uh, great. Did you see how invigorated Tom was with the gospel and how just right out there in the open he gave it? I said, I did. He goes, great. Now, I love the way you speak, so go do whatever it is that you were gonna do, but do it with that intensity. I said, okay, sounds good. (laughs) Dave and I had lunch last Sunday, right after Jamie had shared that example. Dave wanted to talk through what he was gonna say at Cindy's memorial service the next day. 
And as we started to talk, I, you know, it was a quick discussion. I just told Dave, Dave, everything you've planned is gonna be beautiful. Like, you're gonna be awesome. And we talked a little more and Dave finally looked at me and he asked me a question that sort of leveled me in the midst of the circumstances. He said, Rustin, how can I be praying for you? I just went, what? Why are you worried about me? We're about to do a memorial for your wife tomorrow. But see, that's how selfless my friend is. So I knew that part of his love language is to care for people. So I just said, all right. And Dave and I are really close friends. And so he's walked with me through much of 2017. And the Rosellos have been through a lot. Um, Jamie, uh, my wife, not my boss. The next three minutes will be weird for you if you don't make that distinction, so. <laughs> <clears throat> We've had a, a heck of a, a 2017. Because of a lot of my addiction and the chaos that I brought to our marriage early on, Jamie and I never got to do newly married. Uh, we kind of went through chaotic dating. We said I do at the altar. And then we kind of walked into just a nightmare of the first two and a half years. So all the bonding and the intimacy that happens in a marriage early on where you're learning just kind of how to rely on each other we just never got to do that. So we're doing a lot of that emotional and relational bonding and intimacy building now at year 11. So if you wanna know how to kind of work through and restore a dumpster fire of a marriage, we're your people. If you wanna know how to do it early on, find somebody else, okay? Because we're still doing it now. What happened was I started sharing that with Dave, a little bit of my road, and he's walked with me through it, but I was updating him. And then Dave started to talk about something that really changed and impacted me deeply. Dave said, you know, Rustin, let me talk a little bit about what God's done in my marriage over the last 15 months. And you could almost just feel the holy moment kind of settle in because this was unprecedented territory. Dave said, you know, over the last 15 months as I've been a caretaker for my wife, what God has done is, is amazing in the area that you're experiencing in the area of intimacy. God brought a reality to me that this wasn't Cindy's cancer. It was our cancer. So I didn't go to the pharmacy to get Cindy's pills. I would say, hey, Cindy, I gotta run to the pharmacy. We're out of pills. Hey, Cindy, if we're gonna get going, uh, we, we need to kind of get a move on because we don't wanna miss our treatment. And every time there was a decision, it was a decision for our cancer. And he said, through this time, Rustin, what the Lord has done is he has built an intimacy like nothing I've ever seen before. I, I never expected this coming. I just know that like the Lord moved in a deep, deep way. The Lord was bringing something to my friend that was so out of the ordinary and it's my final point for you today because I would pose the question to you this way. Do you wanna be happy or do you wanna be whole? Because what the Lord was doing in my friend was, get this church, he was bringing a wholeness to Dave in the midst of this 15 months, and only Jesus Christ can take something away and create a wholeness. You know what Dave said to me that day? He goes, you know, most people wouldn't believe this, but like I've walked through the last 15 months with joy and peace. Joy and peace. For some of you who are sitting in the room today, some of you may have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you still can't reconcile this thought. For some of you who don't, it doesn't make sense to you how you could lose a wife over 15 months, slowly watching her deteriorate and go, I have joy, I have peace. But that's what Jesus does. He brings miraculous things into our lives in ways that we never expect it. 
He comes and he meets us in places that we never thought we'd be. He brings fruit into our lives. You see, the difficulty with happiness is it doesn't produce much. Happiness is focused on one thing, itself. Wholeness is focused on a bigger picture. You wanna know why wholeness works? Because God says, this world is a super fallen place. I didn't design it that way. You guys actually helped bring that in to this existence. And yet, what he says is, I will work all things for the good of those who love me. All things. I'll work wayward children for the good of those who love me. I'll work cancer and memorial services for the way of, for the good of those who love me. You see, when you pursue happiness, not a lot will serve the end goal of happiness because it's meant to be momentary. It's a shot in the arm. But God says, I can use anything to bring wholeness to your life. You see, wholeness is a better thing. It's the thing that you were made for. It's the thing that your soul longs for more than anything else. What I wanna do today is just focus in on the fact that it wasn't just that the Lord was making Dave whole. It was the fact that in that day where we were talking last Sunday, Dave's wholeness that Jesus was working on in his life started to leak into my life because I listened to the way that my friend loved his wife and realized I wasn't loving mine the way that I should. And the next day in counseling, when we sat there, because guess what, even the Rosellos, you may think because they let me strap a mic to my face and preach a sermon, we got it all figured out. We don't. We're in marriage counseling, just like many of you. And this wonderful counselor sitting there kind of giving a little update and how are you guys doing? And I said, you know, I had a lunch with a friend of mine the other day and I started talking to my wife and just saying, you know, I haven't been loving you the way that I should. There's some selfishness in me. There's ways where I'm still loving myself where I should be loving you. And I gave her some specific examples. She said, you know, you've never said that to me. Not in these areas. Thank you so much as she teared up and realized the Lord was giving some revelation in a place where I desperately needed it. We did a memorial service the next day. 500 people showed up on a Monday at 4.30 to celebrate this woman's life because she had impacted so many. We did this memorial service and Dave spoke for 10 minutes with an eloquence that I can't even describe. Her kids did the same thing, leveled the room. And my job was simple, go tear the cover off of the gospel. And I gave it everything I had. At the end of the service, a woman walked up and she said, I've been in the church for all of my life, but here's what I'll tell you. I don't have what you just talked about. Would you pray with me? We prayed for her to receive Christ. People have told me that they were coming back to SBC. I hear stories all week of how this memorial service moved people. Why? Because the wholeness that God was working in this entire family in Dave's life started to leak out other places. When Jesus goes off, he doesn't just go off in one place. There's a lot of collateral damage and that's the glory of the gospel. I wanna end this way. I wanna talk to the two groups. If you're a believer today, here's what I want for you. I want you to know that happiness is probably not what you should be aiming for because it's something that's gonna happen from time to time, right? It will hap into you. But you were never promised happiness. You were promised something far more beautiful. You were promised wholeness. And in that process, you will experience joy and peace, kindness, goodness, all the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the thing that you long for 
the most. But today's reminder is just to simply tell you that even in difficult circumstances, we can have joy, we can have hope because Christ is using all things for the good of those who love him. And for those in this room who are sitting back saying, ah, man, I don't know this Jesus, but maybe I want to. You may be wrestling a little bit. You may be going, I've been chasing happiness for all of my life. I'm on that treadmill that says, well, maybe if I run at four, I'll be happy. I'll, I'll run a little harder at my job. Maybe at a five, maybe at a six, maybe at a seven, a nine, and you're exhausted and you can't figure out what to do next. I'll tell you, you might be chasing the wrong thing and your heart might be longing for something else. There's an easy challenge today to you. If you're in this room and you don't know Christ, you're probably sitting back saying to yourself, hey, guess what? Uh, I don't know him well enough to be in a relationship with him. And that's all right. Uh, in this room, real quick, if you have a relationship with Jesus, when you started that relationship, would you please raise your hand if you understood everything that was gonna happen in your life and you understood Jesus perfectly. Put your hands in the air now, Cactus Venue Chapel. Kind of a small response, I guess. None of us knew that. Here's the point I wanna close with as I pray for us. Nobody comes to Christ because they understand the road. They come to Christ because they're tired of walking it alone. Some of you need to pray today because you need a best friend on this road. You need somebody who will walk with you who understands it. I'd submit to you today, it's your savior who wants to bring you home. And he's brought so many of us, of us home. But it wasn't because we understood life, it was because we were tired of doing it without him. I'm gonna pray for both groups and at some point I'll invite those who wanna join Christ in a relationship today to just join me and pray quietly to yourself. But let's bow our heads as we close. Lord, right now there's this uh, reality in the room that there's some of us who know you. They're a part of this relationship. They are sitting back kind of saying, you know what? God is so good. And I hope for them today that they are gaining a courage and a, an understanding of who they're made after, who they're designed in, in an image, what that looks like. And Jesus, I pray for the, those who have a saving relationship with Christ, that you would nudge them as we talked about, that you would gently take those shells apart and they would pray that crazy prayer, do whatever it takes to accomplish your purposes in my life. Because what they realize is they will never be pleased with anything other than your plan for them. And that's what they're really longing for. The other group, Lord, that we pray for today is those who are in the room who are seeking after Jesus. That you would be with them, that you would meet them in the midst of everything that's going on. Lord, even now for those who are kind of trembling a little bit going, I feel like I'm supposed to move, but I just don't know if this is the time. Lord, would you just invigorate them that same tenacity that they will need to walk through life with you? Would you just help them feel the love and the invitation that you are moving now? Would you just enlighten that spirit of theirs? For all of those in the room who this is your moment, you wanna come in and experience a relationship with Christ, just quietly to yourself, just pray this prayer with me. Lord, I come home today Father, I recognize that I've been walking this road alone and I just can't do that anymore. I'm in need of something, a relationship that I, I don't fully understand and I, I don't really even know how to get started. I'm coming to you not as a perfect being, not as a perfect person, but as one in desperate need of you 
I've fallen short of your measure of holiness and perfection. And instead of trying on my own to continue to achieve, I wanna come to you and accept the goodness, the perfection, the, the perfect sacrifice in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I accept him as my Lord and my savior. I don't know where we go from here, Lord, but I will follow you. I will look for you. I will dive in after you and I will let you lead me and guide me and love me. I pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.